Hello, and welcome to Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Today, we have New York Times bestselling author, comedian, actress, producer, Phoebe Robinson, who you may know as the co-host of the podcast, Two Dope Queens, and the HBO special of the same name, as well as her solo podcast, So Many White Guys, the films What Men Want, Ibiza, which is currently on Netflix, and maybe you've seen her new show on Comedy Central, doing the most with Phoebe Robinson. Phoebe is the author of You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain, Everything's Trash, But It's Okay, and her third and newest book, Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Phoebe, we are so excited to have you with us today. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. I love books. I love selling books. I love all the things. (laughs) Great, great. I'm sure I missed something in your introduction because you are a working woman. Okay. <laughs> so if there's anything I missed and you want to add then, please feel free. Oh um, uh, yeah. I have a stand-up special coming out for HBO Max this fall. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I'm not sure if the title has been cleared yet by okay. legal, but perfect. I think it will be soon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Don't Sit on My Bed in Your out- your Outside Clothes is first mm-hmm. book published under your imprint, Tiny Rep Books. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, I'm really excited. Let me take this cough drop out. I feel like I've been talking so much. So my I feel like every day my voice is like a little hoarse. But you know what? It's, it's going to affect the sound. So let okay. me take it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. So Please Don't Sit is the first book from the imprint. And I'm really pumped about the imprint. It's something that I have always wanted ever since I met my literary agent, Robert, back in 2014. And, you know, pre-COVID, remember those times with the before times, I had an exploratory call with Plume, who was my publisher on my previous two books about doing an imprint. I was like, I just was like, I don't know if it's the right time. I have all these other projects going on, but I just kind of wanted to see like what's happening. And then COVID happened and like kind of the world stopped and, you know, we're all sort of slightly flailing a little bit. And I had an idea for this essay collection. The the first essay I wrote was hashtag Hornbay about quarantine with my boyfriend. And I was like, oh, I have this idea for this essay collection just about all the things I've sort of been thinking about, like whether it's performative allyship, the self-care industry, becoming a boss, like all these things. And so I told my little agent, I was like, well, maybe we should try and like shop this around. And he was like, well, why don't we shop this around with your idea for an imprint? And I was like, I don't know. It's COVID. There's so much heaviness in the world. I don't think anyone like like coming out with an imprint right now just feels really inconsequential and like not important. <laughs> and he was like, every day you like get up to read. Like that's what you always tell me. You start your day with like reading for hours because it's the one sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so many people are doing that. So now is the right time. And so we went to Plume and we said, here's this book proposal for my essay collection. And here's what I want to do with this imprint. Let's make it happen. And we did. And I'm really stoked about it. It is literary fiction, nonfiction. We're branching into poetry, which I'm really excited Mm. about. We have 11 books on the slate, including mine. And all the books are from debut authors, which I'm really stoked about. I think that's the thing I'm most excited about of all the things with the imprint. And we just wanted to be a place where women, people of color, people from the queer community could have a platform to get their work published because I knew how hard it was for me to get my first book published in 2015. So we we're like, F that. There's going to be no bullshit with us. And like, here we are. <laughs> great. That sounds great. Can you tell us a little bit about the debut authors that we can expect in the imprint? Yeah. So February 1st, 
will be the book What the Fireflies Knew by Kai Harris. And it's a coming of age story about a preteen. Her name is KB. Her father passes away from drug use. And so her mom sends her and her older sister to go stay with their grandfather for the summer. And it's just, yes, it deals with grief a little bit, but it's also about like what it means to be like a preteen girl and sort of like trying to find your way in the world and trying to establish your independence and like, well, well, I like a boy. And what does that mean? Like, how do I express that? I can't talk to my older sister because she like does not want to deal with me because she's like 15, 16. She's out here like dating boys for real. She doesn't have time for my ass. And it's just like a really moving tale. And I truly like I think by page two, I was like, I have to have this book. It's coming out February 1st. And then our next book after that that's coming out in April is called Portrait of a Thief by Grace D. Lee. And she wrote this book while in medical school. So I will never complain about writing a book ever again. Mm -hmm. And it's a story of five 20-something Chinese Americans who get hired to steal Chinese artifacts and artwork from museums and bring it back to China. So it deals with, of course, identity and family, but it really has that hooky sort of Ocean's Eleven, like art heist. And you're like, you're reading it. You're like, oh my God, I hope that they're not going to get caught and blah 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 and that got optioned by by netflix to be a limited series i believe and so i'm really excited about those first two books that are coming out that we have a biography by tourmaline on marsha p johnson that's coming out so we have like a lot of stuff in the works i'm really really excited that sounds great i'm excited to read those thanks you said that the motivation behind wanting to start this imprint to highlight people of color and underrepresented communities is because of your experience and, and what you dealt with. So for the process of you actually pitching the imprint, was it a smooth process? Were they all on board from the very beginning? Was it pretty smooth? So my publisher over at Plume that I work with is uh, Christine Ball, and she's amazing. And she was involved in my first two books. So I think sometimes when people have a little bit of a platform, they're like, oh, I want to have an imprint. You know, sometimes publishers are like, do you really want to do the work of an imprint or you just want to say you have one? But I think they saw, you know, how hard I was working on the first two books. So they really believed that I was going to, you know, like when I went into that meeting with them, I had like a mission statement. I had the audience I wanted to reach. I like did my research on like what sort of outlets would be good, book clubs, like all this stuff. So they saw that I was really serious about this and it wasn't just a vanity project. And so when we're having the conversations, I felt like they went relatively smooth, especially like once we were sort of finalizing things. This is shortly after the hashtag publishing pay me came out. I was just like, listen, like, I'm not going to do this if we're not going to make some changes here. And, you know, one of the key things that I think publishing is still so behind on is the marketing and publicity side. It doesn't matter where you go. It's predominantly white, which if you have authors of color, authors in the queer community, and you don't even have anyone representative of those communities who knows like which outlets to reach out to, that's also, you're not marketing the book as well as you can. Mm-hmm. And so we have it that my personal PR team, which is run by Sam, she's Indian and her partner is Brittany and she's Black. And so we were like, they have to be involved in the publicity aspect on the books. And, you know, I just really feel like publishing said a lot. And so now we have to really do a lot. And I don't want it to just be like, well, there's tiny reparations books and like Roxanne Gay has her imprint. So like the work is done. It's like, no, it's great that we have these things, but you guys also need to do internal work. And so that's really sort of 
you know, when I had those conversations with Christine, she really fully understood. She was like, I understand how important this is to you. And so we'll make that happen. And it was it's really good to have a partner who is like, I want to let you lead the way on that. Like, I don't need to weigh in and be like, well, I don't think you should do this. Like, she really trusts me when I say things like this. And so Mm -hmm. it's been really smooth sailing so far, which is great. That's awesome. That is awesome. I'm so glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) So for your book, don't sit on. <laughs> yes, you're gonna get it. Oh don't yeah, I'll, I'm gonna oh. get my light. Hold on, I'll get my book. Let me. <laughs> I have it, but I. <laughs> I have my book as well, you guys. I'm so excited about this book. But I was like, I'm looking real shadowy over here. I'm like, is this Phantom of the Opera? Let me get my shit together. Okay, there we go. There we go. The same. <laughs> It has been an ongoing struggle with all of the <laughs> virtual meetings to make sure yeah. that my lighting is right. <laughs> actually see me. <laughs> yes. Black girl problems. So yes. <laughs> please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes. Yes. What was your writing process like for this book? Ooh, so I live in a two-bedroom apartment with my boyfriend. So we turned the dining room table into my desk. And that was right between the couch and the kitchen. So I wrote the book from that desk. I went to a couple of hotels in the city twice to be able to just like, I can wake up and just write all day and then go to sleep. It's hard to do that when you're quarantining with someone else. They're like, okay, (laughs) hello, I'm here. But yeah, I think the writing process was sort of like, I don't want to say it was a nice distraction, but it was it was good to look forward to something mm-hmm. that as much as I touch on like serious topics in the book, I think it truly is a funny book. So it really was a nice escape to be like, All right, I'm going to work on something funny and just try and make myself laugh. But yeah, it's it's weird to like write a book during COVID because you're just sort of like, OK, I got to write this thing and sort of pretend like the world isn't falling apart. So there's a lot of compartmentalizing that was happening. But this being my third book, I think. I think it's the best book I've written. I think my writing has gotten better. I think I, you know, can deliver a joke better. And so I think for me, it's something that I'm really proud of. And I think the writing process was easier because I know what my voice is at this point. I know how to tell a story and when I'm trying to make an argument. And so it was really exciting. And of course, because it it is the first book launching the imprint. I was just like, I really want this to be good. Like, I don't want it to be trash. I felt like a little bit of pressure, but I was just trying to remember, just like focus on the book and don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed all of your books first. Let me say that. <laughs> this was probably your most relatable book for me on so many levels. And I really just enjoyed it. And I think you have this great knack we're capturing the signature Phoebe Robinson voice in your work, like your hashtags, the abbreviations, even in your <laughs> footnotes. It's like, I can hear her voice when I'm reading this book. And I'm wondering, is that by design or is that just a happy coincidence? <laughs> yeah, it's it's by design. I mean, I went to I went to Pratt Institute and studied writing. I graduated in 2006. You do the math. <laughs> and then after I started stand up in 2008, I started a blog, probably whatever girls came out, because my first blog post was about girls. And I was like, where are the black people? Um, <laughs> so I think that was like 2011. Oh. Um, and so I really I would do that blog. I write three blog posts a week. And I don't know, I had an audience of maybe like 
a hundred people, if that. Yeah, that's like decent. <laughs> like I sort of like built my way up and I would post on Facebook and be like, hey guys, this is my latest blog post. I click on the link. And so that is sort of like how I kind of like found my voice and really discovered it and honed it. And then doing all these freelance writing jobs and sort of having to figure out like how to like make my voice fit vulture or what have you, but still keep my essence. Mm-hmm. I think I've really sort of developed that skill set. So over the past like decade of like writing these books and blogging, like I really figured out like, you know, I was talking to someone else about this. Like I think like black writers in particular, not every single one, but a lot of them could feel the pressure of like this has to fit within the African American canon of James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. And that's just not me. But that doesn't mean that my work is less valuable or less interesting. So I kind of want to take the piss out of like, this has to be like super serious and I want to have fun. So like when I'm playing with language that way or doing the hashtags, it's sort of like, let's not take all of this too seriously. We still want to be entertained and moved when we read the book, but we also want to have fun as well. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of Black people can relate on the feeling of sometimes being placed as the representation for the whole race. And Mm -hmm. your books talk about being Black. It's obviously, it's your personal experience, but do you ever feel that pressure that you're representing Black people when you write? And even if it's your story, you have to kind of represent Black people in a certain way. I think the way that I write, I'm just like, I just have to write as if no one I know will ever read this. And that's just like how I could get through it because I think otherwise if you like sort of absorb that pressure and mm-hmm. have that top of mind, it's going to affect your writing and most likely not for better, but for worse. And so for me, I just try to tell my truth as purely as possible, as funny as possible. Yeah, I just really just some sort of like, I don't think that Stephen King is writing with like, I got to represent white guys with glasses, you know, um, <laughs> You know, that demo. (laughs) So I'm like, I really just want to just write for like myself. I think about all the writers that I love, whether it's like, you know, Roxanne Gay or Sam Irby or Nora Ephron. They sound so specifically them and they're Mm -hmm. telling their truth. And that's why they resonate. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like, so if I could do that, like if someone in the black community feels like this book doesn't represent them, that's Mm -hmm. okay. There's another book that they will read that will represent them more or they will feel more represented in. That's totally Mm -hmm. fine. And yeah, I just want to take the pressure off. Like I don't have to be everything to every black person. Right. And I think I have a lot of joy in my writing because I'm just releasing myself from that pressure. Yeah, that's great. Okay, let's get into this cover really quick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So with all of your books, there is one thing. Oh, you got all the books. (laughs) Yes. The most. And that is this Afro. Uh-huh. Can you can you tell us why the afro was your choice hairstyle in your in your cover art? I think it's just so eye grabbing. Afros are so beautiful and they're so amazing and they're so fun and artful. And I'm just like with each book. I told my mom, I was like, we were joking that one day we're just gonna have a book cover where I'm just butt ass naked and just covered in hair. <laughs> Um, but I think it's just like you know like I look at this cover I'm like oh who's this like chick like it just makes you want to go like who is this person and what are they thinking and 
you know, I think it just definitely like represents that sort of like confidence in your blackness that I really mm-hmm. love. But I think any black person, no matter how they wear their hair, it represents that confidence. But I don't know. I just feel like it's just like the running theme and like, mm-hmm. you know, how like Adele just has like her album covers, just like her face. I'm like, I think, you know, my book covers are going to have like the Afro, mm-hmm. not that Adele and I are the same, but you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> So (laughs) hair is a reoccurring theme in your books as Mm -hmm. well. And so obviously Mm -hmm. it is very important to you. So my question, I guess, for you is Mm -hmm. what does your hair mean for you? Mm. Black hair specifically. Yeah. I mean, as I write this book, it's sort of an ongoing journey. And what I'm liking is that the older I get, I just have more respect for my hair. I like fall in love with it more and so for me I just feel like black hair represents like versatility and power and beauty and confidence and history and just so many magical wonderful things I follow the um hashtag 4c hair and also like hashtag black hair but sometimes if you follow hashtag black hair on Instagram it's just like the white chick from color yeah (laughs) yeah I'm like, you know, I did not mean the least to your reminiscence, y'all. <laughs> that is um, so true, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but when I follow these, like, these hashtags, I get to see, like, all the, like, ways that people are super creative with their hair and everything. Mm-hmm. It just gets me, like, so excited. It's such a great vehicle for expression. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. And do I wish I, like, knew how to do my hair like they do in the, the tutorials? Yes. I don't really, but it's cool to sort of like marvel at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I regret is not jumping on that YouTube train back in 2010 (laughs) and starting my own channel. (laughs) (laughs) So you said you started writing during the pandemic. I'm thinking probably towards the end of 2020, based on the summer of 2020 that took place. (laughs) Yeah. So I sold the book in the uh, early summer. So I think I started writing it in July. Okay. Yes, that tracks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we saw a lot of mostly white people mm-hmm. beginning to get more involved in the conversation and wanting to read more books about yeah. Blackness, I guess to yeah. put it simply. <laughs> and you talk about performative allyship and mm-hmm. not necessarily kind of diving into the full story of Blackness, just kind Mm -hmm. of doing a little bit of it, only part of the story. And Black people are so multidimensional. There's so many different Mm -hmm. types of Black people. Can you talk a little bit about the performative allyship aspect of that? Yeah, it was just such a strange time to be alive. You know, and I write about this in the book, this sort of like awakening air quotes that white people have that like racism happens and black people get murdered for the color of their skin. And it was such a like, I don't know, it sort of felt like I used to love the show Twilight Zone when I was a kid because it was just like so weird and kooky. And I was like, this feels like the Twilight Zone where like every white person is now a social justice warrior. And they're all like, I only shop at like black owned businesses. And you're like, what? (laughs) What? Like, (laughs) we don't want you to change your personality. Like, Mm -hmm. so like, I'm just going to like, like, this light died. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm a one woman lighting crew here. <laughs> okay, this is going to die in ten, 10 minutes anyway. LOL. It was just such an overcorrection and missing the point. And like, yes, shopping at black owned businesses is great. That's literally the easiest thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, like buying my book is like easy, but that does not mean that you have reconciled your feelings about black people because you bought my book. You know what right. I mean? You know, I was always like, I really need y'all to like, do the work and do it privately mm-hmm. a little bit. The, there was so much like signaling, like, look at what I'm doing or look at what I'm reading or I'm vouching for this person now. And I'm just like, it's in your day-to-day actions. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, what neighborhoods do you live in? Mm-hmm. You can buy, you know, my book or you could buy Sam Irby's book. But then if you're moving to a neighborhood and helping gentrify it, then how much good are you doing? You know what I mean? And so I just want people to live in a way that's not concerned with being on the right side of history and is actually concerned with fundamentally making things better Mm -hmm. and sort of understanding. Like it was so wild to see white people on social media being like, how come the police has not been defunded yet? And I'm like, bitch, you just heard about this two weeks ago. There have been activists working for decades trying to get this happen. And this isn't making a complaint at the Genius Bar at the Apple Store Mm -hmm. about your phone. Like, it's not something that we're going to fix in two weeks or in two years or even in 20 years. And so I think there's just a fundamental lack of understanding of what the work needs to be about. And instead there was a lot of just sort of reactionary sort of major Karen vibes that was just like, I'm going to get myself worked up. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Okay. Like, uh, or just like when, you know, some white people like call you and be like, Hey, I just want to check in on you. And like, we don't need this. I don't need you to check in on me. I truly don't need the phone call. Like, just just focus on like what's being taught in your schools. Like that is a thing that you could do, but that requires more effort than like sitting at tech. Mm-hmm. So I think, but I think last year, my frustration was sort of like, there's a lot of kicking and screaming, but I don't know if the needle is being moved at all. And I think as we look at things this year in 2021, it's sort of like, I don't really know how much has changed. <laughs> like where did, where did it go? <laughs> what yeah, happened? Um, Yeah, I'm like, I don't think publishing looks that much different. I don't think Hollywood has changed that much. I don't think most industries have changed that much. And so I just want it to be more than lip service. And Mm. I think we all know that it mostly was just lip service. I think it was a very draining experience for a lot of us. And I know I personally had to kind of take a step back from social media, society, everything. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, there's a lot going on. And you described yourself as a workaholic. And yeah. I have to say, you look like you have been thriving throughout this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of things do you do to make sure you stay in a, in a good headspace? Mm. My number one thing is I don't doom scroll. So it's like, I want to be aware of what's going on in the news, but I think, you know, social media is designed to get you addicted to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, if I want to read the news, I want to like learn some things, but I'm like, I don't want to just stay and like see every negative thing that's coming out. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. Number two, I went into fair there to sort of like, you know, work through sort of my addiction to work, which just like only intensified during COVID because like that was 
the way I coped. Yeah. And I also have a life coach too. Like, I know this sounds like a lot. I know this is very privileged and I completely understand it if people are rolling their eyes. But I think in general to sort of survive COVID, you just need some outside Mm -hmm. help if you can afford it. And that's a whole other thing with the therapy and self-care industry and how it's not, it's not really made to be easily accessible, which is a whole Mm -hmm. other topic. But having those conversations with people and sort of talking about how to keep my mental on track and sort of like, well, why are you like trying to work so much? And then you realize, oh, well, it's fear based because I'm worried that like, you know, if I don't work like this, what if like I hit like a road bump and then I don't have work for like a year? And so you unpack these things, sort of realize like. At the root of it, it has to be about what the intentionality is. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm trying to do less things now, but things that I either care about or can really devote my energy to, as opposed to like, oh, I got to say yes to everything because the house is on fire. And oh, my God, there's not enough water. And but, you know, it takes a lot of work to like sort of undo that. And, you know, of course, the hustle and grind helped me get to this point. But then Mm -hmm. now it's it's sort of pivoting and figuring out what I want to do for the next 10 years. It's going to be more impactful for me personally. But, yeah, it's a struggle. I know so many people are, are workaholics and really trying to figure it out. And this notion of a work life balance, I don't even know if that's necessarily what we should be aiming for because they're not necessarily to diametrically oppose things for certain people. But yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky mm-hmm. to get a, a handle on it. But I, I'm trying to do the best I can. And like for every sort of like cool thing I announce, there are a multitude of things that like fell apart or didn't work mm-hmm. out. So that's what I always say. I'm like, social media is like 10% of the truth. Yeah, definitely. yeah, definitely. And I know it's it's kind of always like a backhanded compliment when someone tells you, oh, you're handling it so well, because it's not Mm -hmm. that you want to handle it well. It's just, yeah, sometimes you don't have any choice but to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I get that too. You incorporate a lot of information and statistics and data, Mm -hmm. and you can tell you are just a very smart woman. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your research process is when you're incorporating it into your stories, because Mm -hmm. it's layered with with humor and all this, but it's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was a thing. I feel like I learned so many things <laughs> about hair, as, especially yeah. through your book. And is it just like your natural instinct to just kind of research things or do you mm-hmm. specifically? <laughs> you do, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially like, because, you know, with a joke, you want to get it right. You want to make sure it's bulletproof. And also I'm like a curious person. So I kind of want to be like, oh, what is the history of this? Why do I, you know, like when I was writing the essay about my hair, I was sort of like looking at like, yeah, how did 4C hair become this like horrific thing that everyone wants to avoid? Ha- Not everyone, what we're, what we're conditioned to avoid mm-hmm. to want to have. And so that like got me down that path. But usually my process for any sort of writing is like, I usually just sort of like free write and sort of like loosely kind of blueprint like, here are the points that I want to make. This kind of makes me think of this funny thing. So like I'll fact check to make sure that sounds right. And then, oh, if I want to make this point, then I need to like back it with research. And so that'll like set me on a thing. And then I sort of like Frankenstein it together a little bit. And then I like smooth out all the edges. And then like I can add in some stuff once everything is smoothed out. I feel like each essay is sort of like putting together a puzzle and 
I get smarter because I write these books. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. I know this now. This is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so since your your three books are all considered essays and mm-hmm. you've now got this imprint, do you have any plans to write a different type of book in the future? I do. <laughs> yes. I do. I want my next book to be a novel. Mm. And I'm like, this is great because, you know, you don't have to like you don't have to like with the essay collection, you just like write the proposal. And then like you have to go off and write. Well, the novel, you have to write the whole thing before you like show it to anyone. So I'm like, oh, I could take my time. So it might take me like five years to write a novel. <laughs> um, but I'm really looking forward to that. I've been reading like a lot of like fiction work and stuff. I'm currently reading this. I'm like, oh, what am I? A hundred, like a hundred pages into Queenie right okay. now, which I think mm-hmm. is really good. I've been reading a lot of Sally Rooney. Mm-hmm. I realized I haven't been reading a lot of fiction novels by men. Mm-hmm. So I might like just throw a couple in. Yeah. Every once in a while, like every time I go to the bookstore, I'm like, OK, I'm just going to like buy some books and take myself on an artist date. Mm-hmm. And I came back home and I had bought like nine books and they're all like by black people. And I was like, oh, I wanted to get and like black women predominantly. I'm like, yeah. oh, I wanted to get like one male perspective in here. <laughs> I, <didn't. laughs> I was like, whoops. Yeah. Next time. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite genre to read? Oh, that changes. I say essay collections might be my favorite just because, you know, you can be like, OK, I'm going to read like these three essays and then I'm done for the day. But like when you're reading a, a novel, especially if it's like really good, like I remember when I was reading it was such a fun age and read at the bone. I was just like sitting on the couch and I was like, look at the time. I was like, OK, I'm going to stop at one o'clock and I'm like reading and reading. And I'm like, I have to pace myself because I don't want to go through this book so fast. <laughs> And I feel like an essay collection is like, you know, you could just like read at your own ledge and it's totally yeah. fine. But when you get into a, a novel, your ass will get like numb if you yeah. don't like stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read your book in like a day and a half, so I can't. I don't know if it really <laughs> changes too much for me. <laughs> it's a good book. It's a good book. And you want to keep reading. Yeah. But you've also started a production company. Of the same name, Tiny Reparations. So the Comedy Central show is part of this. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other upcoming shows planned for this production company? Yeah. So the special coming out this fall will be that. And then I'm I'm developing um, Everything's Trash as a TV show with Freeform. So hopefully we'll get a series order for that. So we're still in the middle of the development process on that. And then I think we have like, maybe like five to seven shows in various stages of uh, development just because like, we have an animated series that we're really excited Ooh. about. We're trying to get into a one hour drama space and maybe just develop like one drama and like the majority be comedy. So we're really excited. And my head of development is Jose Acevedo and he's really smart and funny and our taste overlaps in certain ways. And then other ways it doesn't like I haven't watched a lot of animated since I was like in high school. And he's like mm-hmm. a big anime made a person when he brought this project to me I was like oh this project is so cool and so like now we like sold it to a network and we're developing it and I'm really excited about it but I don't know if if you would have asked me a year ago would I have an animated show on the slate I probably would have been like I don't think so but Mm -hmm. you know here we are and I'm really really excited about it yeah so I feel like in this last year and a half or so especially we've been seeing a lot of limited series and series that are based on books 
Is that something that you're interested in or you could see yourself kind of doing that crossover? Yeah, I mean, I love limited series. I as much as I, you know, love American TV, I've always been into the UK model of just like, you know, like I love the show Catastrophe. And I think that was like six episode seasons. Mm -hmm. I think Fleabag was six episodes. I love Fleabag. Chewing gum was like, what was it like? Eight, eight yeah, episodes? Eight, yeah. Two seasons. So, yeah. yeah. And I love that kind of stuff. So I would mm-hmm. love to get into the limited series space and just be like, we're going to do six episodes, eight episodes, and then move the F on. Like, I love that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that your path to becoming an author may have been a little different just because of your place in the industry. Mm-hmm. When we do like live events on social media, we get a lot of people asking, you know, like, how do I get published? And yeah. I'm wondering, do you have any advice or feedback for those people? Being on the other side of it now, I it's so interesting. So I would say first, really make sure your writing is like on point. Like for me, I was talking to someone the other day, they were like, do you think you'll always write a book proposal before you sell a book? And I was like, 100% because Mm -hmm. you need to know where the hell you're going. And I think it's very easy to be like, oh, I'll just figure out as I write. And I'm like, good luck with that. That's going to be a shit show. So I really feel like having a plan for what your story is going to be and honing your writing, like all those years I like wrote, you know, like freelance for like 50 bucks and like all that, like went into like my first book and I was able to get it done because. I just had that experience of like working on a deadline. I was like honing my writing voice before anyone knew anything or cared about me as a writer. And I think that that was like so invaluable that I was able to like learn what works for me, what doesn't work, like to like brush up on my weaknesses. So I would say that's first is like really do your homework and make sure that your writing is as undeniable as possible. Mm -hmm. Second, I would say get a literary agent because I really just don't know how you can break through in publishing with the way it's set up without an agent. And you really want to have someone that's really going to fight for you, that's really invested in your work. And the third thing I would say would be to learn about the business side of things. And I think it's really tricky because, you know, all that stuff is like held close to the vest. And so it's really hard sometimes to sort of figure out what is the right thing that I'm supposed to be doing or how much should I ask for like this contract is like, doesn't make any sense. And if you can get a lawyer, Mm -hmm. get one, even if it's just for that one project, like that's what I did. I now have a lawyer and retainer, but for the longest time I was like, Hey Josh, can you like look this over? (laughs) Here here are my pennies. Is this Mm -hmm. okay? Because you really want to arm and protect yourself and make making sure you're getting the best advance as possible, mm-hmm. making sure that you're going to get the best amount of royalties as possible. And then the final thing is like whatever you want to write about or envision as a book, just think about it being a two year process. So if you write essay collections, if it's a novel, it'll probably be longer than that. But just think minimum is going to be a two year commitment. Is this something you're really going to be excited about two years from now? Is it really something that you're going to want to do, you know, six, seven drafts on a couple of polishes on it? If you don't feel like you have it in your heart to commit to doing all that hard work to get it to be the book of your dreams, then like don't write it because you're only going to waste your time and other people's time. So just really understand that editing is the huge and revising is the biggest part of the process. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've kind of always had a little bit of like a business savvy 
mindset to you? Or was this stuff that you've kind of, you had to hire people, you had to get a team and get to the point where you felt confident in this space? Yeah. I mean, I think I've always been business savvy, but I think I've always kind of like I people watch and go, okay, this is what this person's doing, how they got there. And I still do this all the time. Like whenever someone's like interesting to me in business or in Hollywood or whatever, I just look them up on Wikipedia and I just like read their whole life story. I'm like, oh, they did this. It is that. Oh, they met this person. Okay. Oh, they started out this way. I, I love watching documentaries. I just watched a documentary on um, David Geffen. And I mean, like, obviously, like some of the things I could not do because he's like a white dude. Like he just would like go and be like yelling and screaming and getting a deal close. So I'm like, I can't do that part. But it was just like really interesting to see like how he came up in music and like how he like hustled and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And you sort of learn that like anyone who's successful has kind of just been like, oh, this door is closed. So I'm just going to work around this way mm-hmm. and get in. And so I think I just pick up on that and I just try and figure out what works for my personality and temperament and like what doesn't. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just, I'm always like, as a woman, especially as a woman of color, I just have never wanted to put myself in a precarious position business-wise. So Mm -hmm. I think I've been hypersensitive to like educate as I go. Um, The learning never stops. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's been good for me. That's great. I love it. Phoebe Robinson's newest book of essays, Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, is out on 928, which is also Phoebe's birthday. So wish her a happy birthday. Support her. Buy her book. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us today. This was great. Thank you and so much for having me. This is all I love talking about books more than almost anything else. So this is great. So thank you so much for having the perfect lighting from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I did not, but lesson learned. (laughs) And like your questions were so thoughtful and it was really, you have just such a warm spirit about you. So this was fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Of course. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.